front end thanking Justin Weavers for um, standing in the last two weeks in the pulpit, taking us not just in a very difficult text in 38, but also leading us so well. On Membership Sunday last week, uh, EFCA reached students nationally. Is uh, They're blessed to have Justin as national director, and we're blessed to have him in our pulpit from time to time here. So um, though he makes fun of me every chance he gets, I return with compliments to heap coals upon his head. Um, but I am, in all sincerity, super thankful for him. Let me uh, begin our time in prayer. Let's ask for help. Lord, as we look into the text this morning, so many, so many things come to mind. So many issues are drawn to our attention and focus. And what we pray now, Spirit of God, would you move in such a way so as to make what is central, central to our eyes. Help us to see Christ. Help us to see the cross on full display. Help us to see that we might respond appropriately in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I had originally written... Uh, my sermon, written into my sermon, a different story here at the front end of a missionary to introduce our, our time together. But throughout the week and even yesterday morning, this other example that I've used before just kept coming to mind. The Lord just kept putting it on my heart as, as I went throughout the week. And the reason it kept coming to mind, I think, is in part because it's just, it's a better example. The other one felt a little bit forced. But we've also, it's, it's an example that we've talked about before. And here we have this opportunity to look at this story that we've heard in connection with persecution. Back when we were preaching almost two years ago now, the beginning section of the Sermon on the Mount, and we were dealing with the reality that Christians have to be prepared for persecution. We heard this story. But actually this morning we have this chance to tell the st same story and see why these kinds of stories, regardless of what kind of adversity or challenge they describe for us are so powerful for the Christian life. Like I want to talk this morning about not just that these stories challenge us, that there's a, a sense in which obviously the stories that we hear of martyrs or of missionaries who've been persecuted, right? Um, the persecuted church, these stories challenge us obviously, but I want to talk about why they challenge us. So in his book, The Insanity of God, Nick Ripkin talks about, you know, his very first Chinese contacts from southern China and how they had specifically explained the government's primary motivation in China behind the persecution there. You know, why were they persecuting the way they were? And he said, you know, it's not actually that the communists in China oppose or even really care about what Jesus' followers, uh, what Jesus taught his followers, okay, doctrinally. They weren't concerned as much with Christian beliefs as they were with, with Christian allegiance. I mean, obviously there's doctrine underneath the allegiance, right? But that was their primary issue. The communist political structure, the culture, wanted Christians' allegiance. But they also knew clearly that Christians declared the lordship of Christ. That's just what it means to be a Christian, you know? Christians don't get to decide whether or not to give their allegiance to a political structure or to a cultural movement or to Jesus. A Christian by definition is one who confesses the supreme lordship of 
Jesus that will not be shared with the state, that will not be shared with the populace. And that confession of Jesus over and above the state, over and above any surrounding culture, that confession is what was threatening to the power structures in China. And so, you know, almost famously now, as you might have heard the story, Ripken asks his Christian friends in China, how is it possible that an oppressed group could be so threatening to this totalitarian oppressor? Why are they so threatened by Christians? Okay. And his friends in China offered this scenario as their response. It's an interesting scenario, and it's one that I want us to continue to think about together. But he says, they said to him, so the security police regularly harass a believer who owns the property where a house church meets. The police say, you've got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we'll throw you into the street. Then the property owner will probably respond, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I gave this property to him. The security police will not know what to make of that answer, so they will say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. When we take your property, you and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church believers will declare, then we will be free to trust God for shelter as well as for our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors will tell them. Then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing, the believers will respond. And then we will put you in prison, the police threaten. By now, the believer's response is almost predictable. Then we will be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives, to set them free. We will be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities will vow. And with utter consistency, the house church believers will reply, then we will be free to go to heaven to be with Jesus forever. Okay, so... We hear these stories, we hear these scenarios that these Christians are saying are a part of choices they need to make, stances that they're making, right? And those stories should challenge us. Like we should be thinking about, are we willing to sacrifice even far less in a Western culture than these Chinese Christians are willing to sacrifice on a regular basis, right? So it should challenge us, but, but maybe we don't get there in the way that we think. Maybe it doesn't actually challenge us or shouldn't actually challenge us in the way that we think about these things. Sometimes we use stories like this, stories of martyrs, those who we might consider heroes of the faith like this. We use these stories almost like moral tales. Like here's what a certain missionary did. Here's what a group, Christian biographies can sound this way too sometimes, right? So and let me explain, okay? So here's what a missionary did. Here's what a group of persecuted people did in the midst of being threatened for their faith. They were so brave, they were so courageous, go and do likewise, right? But while we do want Christians to go and do likewise, I, that's important, right? So we do want the go and do likewise part. The front part of how, how we get there is the wrong response. Making it primarily about what the Christian missionary did, did to get there, it's the wrong starting point for that. It's the wrong catalyst. The story shared by Nick Ripkin it isn't actually about how brave and heroic and steady these Chinese Christians have become in the face of persecution. Though certainly, you know, 
It's not wrong to speak about those things. It's not wrong to speak about their bravery. Not minimizing the response at all. This is the response of Christians. It's the response of, it's the way that the New Testament scriptures in particular describe the Christian's response to the pressures of the world around them. And so the story, rather than being about how brave and heroic the people are, is how great God is in generating this kind of response in his people. The question isn't simply how brave must these Christians be to stand against persecution, but rather how great must God be in order to be seen as more comforting than their homes, more secure than a place to live, so precious that he's worth more than a life that goes unthreatened. So, so precious that he's ultimately worth being beaten, thrown in prison, and eventually killed. Because of who he is and what he's done. These stories help us see, you know, not how we're primarily supposed to behave as Christians. But rather, what the God of the Bible does in us when we're confronted with the gospel. What kind of response the God of the Bible generates in his people and why he generates that kind of response specifically. Saying this person is strong, be like that strong person, has no power for transformation and change. The Chinese Christians hearing us speak like that would say, no, no, you're misunderstanding. It's not about me. Don't you even see in my response? It's that Jesus is that comforting. For that Chinese Christian, Jesus is more precious than anything. He's more satisfying than anything do we grasp that in our time, in our cultural moment? Do we believe it? Do we speak of Jesus being more precious than anything that could be offered to us by surrounding culture? Okay, and in the same way, so that's the point of those stories. In the same way, we often have a similar faulty starting point when, when approaching narratives like Genesis 39. Joseph and Potiphar's house. The chapter challenges us, but maybe not in the way that we're so used to thinking about it. Because we want to immediately, in the same way, think of this in terms of a moral tale. Here's what Joseph did when he was literally up against the wall in terms of temptation. And here's what he did to get, to, to get out of it. Now go and do likewise. And again, of course, we want the do likewise part for the believer. This is important for us. In terms of putting effort toward resisting temptation, struggling, wrestling against it, fighting it, the Christian should do that. But not only is this, you know, primary focus on jo Joseph's heroic behavior the wrong starting point, the text just wasn't written for that purpose. This isn't primarily a text about avoiding temptation. In the same way that I think the Chinese Christian missionaries hear people moralizing stories about their persecution and cry out in horror like, no, this isn't about me. Right? This story doesn't glorify me. I'm nothing apart from Jesus. The story is about the goodness of our God. That he's so good that, of course, of course I'm going to respond this way. In the same way that they cry out that way, the author of Genesis cries out in the text four times in Genesis 39. The author cries out four times in advance in order to make sure that we understand that this isn't actually about Joseph at all. It's about the goodness of God's presence in all of life for those who put their trust and hope in him. That he is good. That he is precious. 
that he is worth all of these things, that he is worth this response, not just worth it, but that it generates the kind of response in the Christian of like, of course, this is, this is what I must do. In other words, the story begins and ends with the same statements from the author about God's goodness and presence with his people. It begins and ends that way, but it also begins and ends, the same statements, but it also begins and ends with two very different human circumstances. Two very different circumstances, the exact same statements about God. So if you look with me at 39 as a whole, if you have a Bible in front of you, set your eyes there. 39 as a whole, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Verse 3, the Lord was with him, the Lord caused all that he did to succeed. Now verse 21, the Lord was with Joseph, showed him steadfast love and gave him favor, Verse 23, the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made him succeed. Verses 2 to 3, verses 21 to 23, giving the same statements of God's goodness, but as we'll see, found in two very different circumstances for Joseph. And so, the text really demands that our outline is essentially God's presence with his people, his ultimate goodness with his people, both in times of advance and times of adversity, both in times of success and times of suffering. So let's begin first with God's presence in times of advance. God's presence in times of success. Because Joseph, in these first six verses, truly has advanced from the, the status that he had arriving in Egypt. All right, so we'll see that together. But let's just read the opening clause real quick to get some, some context. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. Okay, so verse 1. The author of Genesis is fully aware. He's fully aware, you guys. That he just took this lengthy interlude in chapter 38, focusing us on Judah and Tamar in the previous chapter. Some people say, well, that's something that must have been added on later because it's so disconnected from the Joseph narrative. No, I mean, transitionally, we see these very intentional transitions. And so this word, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, it both resumes an account, picking back up where he left off, but it also connects us back to the previous narrative. And we might say... What on earth does the Joseph story have to do with what Justin just preached on related to Judah and Tamar? Well, if you were listening, um, you know at least part of that answer. And if you didn't get a chance to hear it, I'd really encourage you, go back and listen to Justin's sermon on 38. But there's no question that Judah and Tamar, this narrative in 38, raises the tension of the Joseph story. Because it demonstrates, again, right, the utter hopelessness of God's people apart from the promises that he makes, apart from his presence, his active presence with them. It's just this utter hopelessness, right? There's this constant theme that Salheimer talks about, promise in jeopardy, promise in jeopardy, right? You know? So, and yet God's present with his people. Remember, this theme of God's presence is repetitive in Genesis, a lot of it pointing back to this dream or vision that Jacob has earlier on in which God descends the staircase rather than Jacob climbing the staircase. God descends in order to be with his people. So God's presence with his people, it's a repetitive theme, but it's one in these narratives, like it's this theme in these narratives of Genesis that constantly keeps us on the edge, on the edge of our seats. It doesn't let us get comfortable. It's like, it's like watching a Bears game. Like you would be ahead by 38, but you don't, don't go to sleep. All right. So it constantly has us on the edge of our seats. It's like you know, reading Genesis is kind of like watching a movie about a group of people who are always pretty nasty to the protagonist. Like, really nasty. And you're watching, and you're kind of asking this question, kind of wondering, when is he going to say, enough of this? You know, when is he going to say, 
I'm done, and seek, actually seek retribution against those who are so, so nasty to him? Or when will he be so fed up that he just decides he's done with these people and he moves on to someone else who will appreciate his goodness and presence, right? There's the sense of that in Genesis where it's not, it's not God's faithfulness, lack of faithfulness that puts the promise in jeopardy. It's human failure again and again, right? And so there's this question, is God going to be done? The reader of Genesis has a front row seat to God's continued mercies despite the duplicity of the continued, just utter duplicity of the patriarchs. Failure after failure. And so Judah and Tamar's story heightens the tension in this narrative in particular. It pushes us maybe a little bit more onto that edge of our seats again to see whether or not this is going to end well or badly. So let's keep reading and find out. Verse, continuing in verse 2. And Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him, bought Joseph, from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. He became a successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Again, again so there's the introductory remarks about God's goodness and presence. The book end of the chapter. Verse 4. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house. Put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. Okay, so the rest of this section is pretty straightforward. These two introductory statements, God's presence, the book and the chapter, and these aren't, as we see in any way, conditional statements that are dependent upon Joseph's moral character and uprightness. Nor are they dependent upon his behavior and choices. These statements are made prior to what we know to how Joseph's going to respond in this text. They're descriptive statements about the nature of God's promise that he's made to his people. And on that basis we see everything that Joseph does succeeds because of God's favor in particular in this time of success. In addition, we see in verse 5 that God is fulfilling his promises through Joseph. That despite the fact that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, right? There's another sense of like promise and jeopardy. Here's the heir of Jacob. He's being sold off. Despite that, the Lord continues to fulfill his promises through him. Where it says, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So through Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, right? According to God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here we see it playing out on something of a smaller scale. Israel's existence as God's people was never to be this elite group that was called away from the world to enjoy what others never could in terms of fellowship with God, but everybody else is my enemy. But rather, they were intended to be a light to the world that demonstrated God's goodness to the surrounding nations. And that's going to happen even more as we move on from this text, but you kind of see the seeds of it beginning here in, in uh, the first part of 39. But we mention all of that to say, it's actually not a story about the success of Joseph, right? It's a story of God's faithfulness to his promises. In the midst of time of success, God is with Joseph. His promises stand true in this time. You know, and I think there's a real danger in making this about Joseph in more ways than one, right? Because maybe, maybe there's some ways in which when everything is going super well in your life, it's kind of easy to say that God is good. To say it outwardly. 
You know, it's kind of easy to, to kind of, well, yeah, I mean, I definitely believe it. Things are going super well. It's easy to acknowledge some form of God is good when things are going well. But it's also maybe in a lot of ways harder to believe during times of success. Like, we kind of assume it. See, I think the reality that the author is putting these two circumstances side by side, advance and adversity, success and suffering, he's doing that because there's a sense in which these two things are meant to be contrasted within these statements of God's presence, right? So there's a lot of ways where it's harder to believe where we assume God's goodness. I mean, when everything is going swimmingly in our lives, our natural disposition isn't to realize how much we need the Lord. If it's from our efforts, or if it feels like it's from our efforts, we can very easily say outwardly in times of success that God is good, while at the same time actually believing that I'm kind of the reason for whatever's happening. You know, like trusting in myself more and more. Believing my efforts are the ultimate reason for times of advance that we find ourselves in. So we, we continue by relying on ourselves and our work rather than believing that even when things are going really well in life, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, with doing really, with having success, right? Even when things are successful, we are in the same desperate need of the Lord as when things are not. The exact same. Desperate need of him. But it's hard to see that we still desperately need God's grace and mercies on which then we rely less and less and less as we go. This is why, you know, in comparing and contrasting before we head into this second section of adversity, kind of taking a moment to compare them. This is why with my boys I really like to highlight when a professional athlete, with my, all my kids, but especially my boys because they tend to really revere professional athletes, right? Um, I'd like to point out when a professional athlete loses the big game, has real adversity actually, and still declares, you know, the goodness of the Lord. So for Christian athletes to declare God's goodness when they have horrible injury, when they have horrible failure after failure after failure, right? So Cody Parkey, kicker for the Bears, who had the infamous double doink uh, kick that hit the crossbars, both of them, <laughs> come on, uh, on both sides and then came back out uh, and costing the Bears this playoff game. It was like a 30-yard chip shot. Everybody was ready to, like Nagy has a big smile on his face. Anyway, okay, it's okay. So double doink, it comes off, it doesn't happen, right? And so we're watching this, we're Bears fans, so we're watching this in, in horror. And what we see play out is pretty interesting because, and we have Bears fans here at GLC. I'm not trying to rub salt in any wounds. I, I kind of feel like in light of Justin Fields and the draft on Saturday, we can process some of these things together. But um, after the double doink, Parky could have gone into the locker room. He probably wanted to. You know, like, I would have wanted to, and then I would have never wanted to emerge again, you know. Um, but instead, here's what happened. And this is what, it wasn't like a big thing, but it was captured on camera for people who were watching the end of the playoff game. Instead, he quietly walked out into the middle of the field, right, where the cameras were, right, but walked out in the middle of the field and quietly knelt behind, but beside about 12 other Christian athletes to pray. Just quietly plopped himself down, didn't hide, just to, to spend, a time, spend time giving thanks to God after this game. And I said, guys, I told my boys, my admiration of Parky just went, Way up, because he's proclaiming the goodness of God, right? 
in the midst of failure, that this isn't his identity, that this isn't, you know, where he finds his justification. I said he probably, he probably shouldn't be our kicker anymore, but um, he's demonstrating his faith in the goodness of God when it's not a moment of success and when repeatedly it hasn't been. He missed more field goals that season than any kicker in Chicago history. Which brings us now from God's goodness and presence in times of advance or success. God's, God's present for, for his people. We need to see it and recognize it. To now, it's more difficult counterpart. God's goodness and presence in times of adversity or suffering. Starting in the second part of verse 6. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in, in the house. He's put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He recognizes that sin isn't just this horizontal thing, right? That it's primarily... Uh, sin against God. Verse 10, and, and she spoke with, to Joseph day after day, but he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. There's a really interesting, in just about every way in 39, there's a really interesting plot reversal in Genesis. And it's finally like surprising. It's surprising. So if you've been with us from the beginning of Genesis, like this, th these short few verses, this should, should shock you to a certain extent. Because, you know, Joseph is... It's like the third patriarch to leave the promised land to go to Egypt. The fourth to leave for various reasons, but third to go to Egypt. And um, when his forefathers, Abraham and Isaac, went to Egypt, remember what happened? They both have attractive wives. Their attractive wives were seen by rulers of the land. They both essentially give their wives over to these rulers passively because they don't want to be in danger, you know. Uh, they'd rather capitulate and just preserve themselves. And so they say, oh, she's my sister. They give up their wives. How passive do you need to be, right? They give up their wives to these rulers by saying, oh, they're just my sister. And in the end, it was the ruler of the land that realizes what's happening. Maybe because the Lord revealed it or because it came to his attention in some other way. And they show a kind of righteousness that shame the patriarchs. They actually teach the patriarchs righteousness. Here, instead of having a wife who's found attractive by a ruler in Egypt... Jacob himself is found attractive by a ruler's wife. And there's also this, this striking reversal in terms of Joseph's response here. You know, rather than this super, super passive response with Abraham and Isaac in these kinds of circumstances, which would have sought to just preserve himself, I mean, there really is a sense in the exact same way. I mean, the themes are the same. There's a strong sense in which if Joseph wants to preserve himself, the answer in terms of response is pretty clear of what and we'll, we'll talk more about it, but what he would have to do. But that's not what happens. Joseph is far from passive. He's far from thinking primarily about self-preservation. He demonstrates that he has something of a different heart. His desires beat for something, his heart beats for something else. His desires are primarily motivated by something other than self-preservation, which is really interesting at this point. In the text, his response isn't passive. It demonstrates his clear loyalty to Potiphar and his ultimate loyalty to Yahweh in verses 8 and 9. And that's important because while obviously there's like 
sexual temptation involved here. The larger issue is the same one that Isaac and Abraham faced in Egypt. Potiphar's wife has the power to ruin Joseph, as far as he knows, in the same way that Abimelech had the power to ruin Abraham and Isaac, as far as they knew. Like, she has the power to, like, Potiphar has trusted him with everything. This is very unheard of. It happened where slaves became, like, very well-respected managers of households, right? But for this to happen so quickly. And Potiphar's, Potiphar's wife seems to have the power to upend it all, and as we'll see, she does. When faced with that dilemma in Egypt, neither Abraham nor Isaac trusted the Lord to be present with them in the face of adversity. In success, we see a lot of that. In adversity, not so much. They both capitulate. They're both willing to give everything up. Give everything up in order to get something, you know. It's important to point out that that for really one of the first times, as we've been preaching through Genesis, you guys, like one of the first times, it only took us 39 chapters, here Joseph doesn't capitulate. It's actually surprising to the reader. And it doesn't stop there. Verse 11. But one day, he went into the house to do his work. None of the men of the house were in the house. She caught him by his garment. So she's not letting go. She has him seized. Not letting go. Um, So he might have been handsome in form and appearance, but he's apparently pretty weak. Um, And uh, he just, she says, lie with me. Leaves his garment in her hand. Fled and got out of the house. And as she saw... He left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house. She called the men of the household saying, See, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. This is an idiom. There's some mockery involved here, but it also involves um, a, a different kind of allegation as well. He came in to lie with me. There you see it. I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as I heard that, I lifted up my voice and cried out. He's left my garment beside me and fled out of the house. Then she laid his garment by her until the master came home. So, you know, this is... Manipulation at its finest. She lays it out. She's waiting for him. He comes through the door, tears, right? Uh, outcry. She, uh, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So Joseph's response, even when she tries to catch him off guard, right, in this moment, and really corner him here and leave him without much of a choice. Unless he's just, he knows what's coming, right? Uh, It continues to surprise us in the face of the response of the patriarchs in similar situations. Like, why is this here? These Joseph narratives seem to give this balance to the narratives about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who, as Patrick said in, in his final sermon at Gospel Life, he said, how many like Jacob? You know, like we were preaching through Jacob. It's like, man, he's not very likable for a lot of reasons. This stands in contrast to a lot of that. So why? Why the balance? How? How is it possible? Because together, these two sections show us something vital that's been missing up to this point to a certain extent in Genesis, which is together these sections show both God's faithfulness when there's human failure after failure after failure, as well as God's faithfulness to bring about and generate a faithful response. See, in in, in the history of redemption, you don't see God saying, well, okay, in order for this to happen, I have to just be, I have to be good to my promises, and there's just going to always be nothing but 
evil and sin. And so therefore, I have to just always be good to my promises. You actually find the Lord generating in his people through what he came to do, through, through what he purposed to do, as we'll see, a new heart. A new heart that actually has new desires, that shapes us in different ways, right? It gives us a glimpse of what's to come in the, the biblical narratives. As, as Salheimer writes so helpfully, he says, the theological emphasis here in 39 is remarkably similar to that of the New Covenant theology of Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36, where the two themes of divine sovereignty and human responsibility are woven together. How? Time out. So how? How is human responsibility possibly woven together with divine sovereignty, this holy, good, righteous, completely other God in the midst of human responsibility that's failure after failure after failure? How? How are the two woven together? Salheimer continues, by means of the concept of God's spirit giving to a person a new heart. A new heart given by God that responds with obedience and faith. It can hardly be accidental, Selheimer writes, that in all of Genesis, only Joseph is described as one who's filled with the Spirit of God in chapter 41. The same theological emphasis is found in Deuteronomy 30, where Moses grounds his hope in the future of God's promises and the divine work of giving a person a new heart. Good news here. In so in Joseph's response, we find this Old Testament, first book of the Bible, first book of this larger unit of the Pentateuch, this Old Testament foreshadowing of what's to come. That God has been faithful to his promises, that he'll continue to be faithful to his promises, despite failure after failure after failure, even as we go throughout the Old Testament in the lives of his people. But the day is coming in which he will generate a new response. Not one of failure but rather of growing faithfulness that will never be perfect in this life, but that will be perfected in the age to come. What's to become of Joseph in the meantime? After this response. Starting in verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, and by the way, this is just a complete upending of any health, wealth, and prosperity teaching of Genesis 39. Where if you're faithful, God just blesses you and blesses you. Because he lands in prison. Okay, so let's keep going. Um, heard the words that his wife spoke to him. This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him in prison. The place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was to be done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge. Because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So Joseph's imprisoned due to no fault of his own. In fact, he's imprisoned because of his righteousness. Okay, so the narrative explicitly tells us his imprisonment is... It's unjust. It's a reversal of the way things should be. His judgment's totally unjust. All he had to do, and this is important. If you're going to understand the point of 39, you have to understand. All Joseph had to do was capitulate to the cultural moment he found himself in. He would have been given everything. He would have been handed the keys. Continued power in Potiphar's house. The favor of both Potiphar and now his wife. His wife would have more reason to keep him in power as well. He'd potentially be able to turn even more heads. But by doing what was right, he lands in prison. 
he does it. And in the midst of that, in verses 21 and 23, God is good. And he's with Joseph in the midst of adversity. Here's the reality. The Christian life is often very, very lonely. Because if it's truly a Christian life, one that's thrown itself on the mercies of Christ, a recognition of my sin, a recognition of my need for a Savior, a recognition that I need to throw myself on the one who came to do everything that I could never do right, so that I could have life in him. It's truly that kind of a life. It's going to generate a response that is basically always, almost always running counter to culture. So you can lose friends, you know. You can lose friends out of holding historically orthodox position of what the scriptures say. In other words, just by believing what Christians in every century up until about the last 100 years have believed about the interpretation of scripture, you can be cast out of culture, spoken of by the world in which you live as someone who believes in the goodness of bigotry and hate. And so it can be lonely, right? And there's a lot of reasons in the midst of that loneliness where the real temptation of 39 is the, is the same temptation of, of Abraham and Isaac. It's the temptation that it's easier to capitulate so that I'm, I don't have to deal with that. Who wants to deal with that? You know? Like, nobody wants to be thought of as a hateful bigot. Nobody wants to have their belief system, that which they stand upon, cast them out of, make them an outcast in the society in which they live. Nobody wants Pharaoh or Abimelech to kill them because he thinks their wife is pretty. You know, nobody wants those things. Nobody wants to lose their power or standing in the house where they've risen to power. You know, like, the real, real teaching here for us in the text is how, how easy it is for the human heart to desire capitulation. The question is, why is the Christian response the one that says what the Chinese Christian said in Nick Ripkin's example? When these kinds of threats and even more come along. Because the Christian is one who's received a new kind of heart. No longer beats for the approval of men. No longer beats for anything else that we can be given. But instead, there's something else that's happening, that's generating our response to the world around us. All of what God has given shines bright as the world grows dim. And everything that the world offers pales in comparison to what we have in Christ. This is why the author writes this section in Genesis. To assure God's people, to assure Israel. I mean, this is the readers of this text in the synagogue would be assured of God's presence with them in times of advance and in times of adversity, they'd be assured that their God is coming to grant them something, to make something new possible, a new kind of response to him. The very thing that makes his good presence with us possible because there's a true and better Joseph who would not only leave his father's house as the designated heir in order to land in a place where he had no earthly status, but who would do that intentionally, right? That doesn't happen in the Joseph narrative. 
The true and better Joseph does so intentionally in order to save his people. He wouldn't only deny temptation to take a shortcut to power and prestige when Satan tempted him, but he would upend the demonic realm and give us what we needed in order to face into temptation. He wouldn't only be falsely accused, though innocent, but he would intentionally bear all of our burdens that we're actually rightly accused of. That we might not only leave the prison house, but actually be invited into his family through his completed work. Apart from Christ, all of us in this room are in the prison of judgment. Because we deserve it. You know, not unjustly. It's not unjust for, us, for, for that reality. Because of our sin. Any conversation of justice has to begin with the recognition of God's justice against sin. It has to start there. And he's right to pour out his wrath against all of our injustices because they are many and we just we compile injustices upon injustices. But through Jesus, that wrath that should have been poured out on all of us because of what we had done were poured out on Jesus though he had committed none. You know, That we might be declared innocent the way he truly was. That we might have new life in him. This he did out of his great love for you, to grant you a new heart, to bring you into his family, to generate in you a new kind of response that in the midst of a surrounding culture or world that might demand a different kind of allegiance from you, your heart doesn't beat for the approval of men, but for Christ. And so Christians have historically said, along with Newton, we're the whole, whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so div divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. And that's why we proclaim the gospel to one another. You know, that's why it's important that when the church gathers, rooting all of life in the good news of Jesus for his glory and the city's good, we're proclaiming the gospel to one another. This is why we come to the table, to the Lord's table weekly at Gospel Life Church, because here we have this tangible proclamation of, of grace in the gospel that actually motivates and moves the believer in the ways that we're talking about here because he has given us a new heart in him because his body was broken his blood was shed and we're now in union with Christ with new desires I am crucified with Christ there's no longer I who live but Christ Jesus who lives in me and so if, if you're here this morning you're a non-believer, I would tell you this meal is for believers. We would ask you to participate. Participate by observing. Participate by asking questions. If you're here and you're a believer, this meal is for you. This meal is a means of proclaiming grace to one another. And so, uh, taking the elements. For I received from the Lord...